All right, well, good morning. Uh, it's good to be here with you all today. Um, we are jumping back into our series called Stories of Old, A Journey Through the Old Testament, which is part of this bigger thing that we're following called the Narrative Lectionary, which gives us this big, grand narrative uh, story of Scripture. And um, I don't know about you, but it's, it's, it's been a really good discipline for me to read Scripture in this light of the bigger, broader story of Scripture. So I hope that that... Um, I hope that you're picking that up uh, each week as we, we jump into the text for the day, that um, this is all part of this unfolding story that exists within Scripture. Um, so as we uh, get started uh, for this morning, uh, I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Loving God, uh, we are grateful for the gift of uh, the church. We're grateful for the gift of this community and we're grateful for uh, the chance to gather this morning and to be together and to uh, open the scriptures and wrestle with them together. God, we acknowledge that your spirit is here among us. And uh, as we turn to the scriptures, we yield ourselves to your spirit and ask that your spirit would lead us, guide us, shape us, and form us more into the way of Jesus. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So over the last number of years, I've had numerous conversations with uh, countless folks about uh, challenges that they're having with their faith. Uh, many of these conversations, by the way, exist entirely between me, myself, and I within the confines of my head, but that's a different story for a different day. But I've had all of these conversations with different people who have these challenges with their faith, and time and time again, like a similar sort of theme emerges, that they get to a place where they recognize that the faith that they have inherited meaning like the faith that they received, the faith that was given to them from their church or their parents or other guardians, like the faith that they have inherited just isn't working anymore. Um, the, the, the answers that they had just aren't lining up to the questions that they now experience in life. And for many of these people, like they've had some sort of profound encounter with Jesus and they recognize like they love Jesus, whether it be the experience that they've had in their own life or the experience that they've had through reading about the life and the teachings and the ministry of Jesus through the gospels. They love Jesus. And yet they, they find that they have these concerns about um, the institutions that have been built up around Jesus and the institutionalized thought about Jesus. To say it another way, these people really love Jesus but have concerns about the quote-unquote church, and concerns about the quote-unquote official teachings of the church. Now, when we get to this place of like acknowledging that our faith just isn't working, there's a couple different ways that we can talk about it. One of the ways that we can talk about it is a crisis of faith. Um, and I think that this is a really appropriate term because if we find ourselves in this place, uh, there's, a, there's a chance that like this, our faith has been like the bedrock of our life. Like, this is the one thing that we didn't question, that this is the one thing that we, we, we assumed would always be a constant in our life. And when we begin to question that, it's like the alarm starts to go off in our head, right? There's that flashing strobe light and the... <laughs> Hopefully it doesn't sound like that, but um, that sort of alarm going off in your head, right? And so crisis of faith like, makes an awful lot of sense, right? That's one way of talking about this, this period of our lives where we recognize that our faith just isn't working anymore. There's another term that we can use for this, and this one carries with it some cultural baggage. So if that's where you're at, like, hang with me, set it off to the side, we'll, we'll work through this, right? Um, but this other term that we can use for this is the phrase, or the term deconstruction. Um, 
Now, regardless, or whether we're talking about crisis of faith or deconstruction, again, I, I think these terms are interchangeable in a lot of ways. Again, we get to this place where there's this recognition that our faith just isn't working. That um, there's a, a lack of congruence between like, what we see in the life of Jesus and perhaps the, the lived reality of that in the midst of, of the church or the teachings of the church. And so what begins to happen then in the midst of a crisis of faith or a deconstruction is we begin to reevaluate everything within our faith. And one of the ways that we can go about doing that is assuming that our faith is like a Jenga tower, right? We begin to like poke out one block, one sort of like thought or teaching, and we begin to pull it out. Like this is where we get this idea of deconstruction, right? We're deconstructing this tower and we take it out and we reevaluate and we analyze like, is this good? Do I want to keep this? Do I want to put this back on top? Do I want this to be part of this tower that I call my faith? Or do I want to get rid of this? Is it, is it time to move on from this idea? And if you've ever found yourself in a crisis of faith or in a, a, a period of deconstruction, you know that it can be a really scary, sort of disruptive, sort of disorienting experience. Again, because these are things that like, perhaps we took for granted, that we never actually like, stopped to consider the implications of them. And to begin to reevaluate them can feel really, really scary, really, really disruptive, really, really disorienting. It can be like waking up one day and like, realizing that up is actually down. Or waking up one day in the fall and discovering that University of Michigan football is somehow relevant again. Like it's a scary, disrupting, disorienting sort of thing. Sorry, Dave. Um, I don't even remember where I was going after that. I... <laughs> it was disorienting, yeah. Now, uh, when it comes to these moments of like uh, a crisis of faith or a deconstruction, uh, there's often like rather a trigger point, like one particular thing that happens that, that leads us into this, or there can be a series of trigger points, like smaller things over the course of time. And when it comes to these uh, um, trigger points, there's often like an, an unveiling that happens, right? Either something happens or there's a series of things that happen where we begin to see like the curtain coming down. We begin to see behind the curtain and we begin to see things the way that they are. The Bible, by the way, has a, has a word for this unveiling, and it's the word apocalyptic, which is like top five all-time scary words, right? Apocalyptic, and, it, and it, it, it is, right? Because it's scary, it's disrupting, it's disorienting. But it doesn't have to be scary because of like, things like late great planet Earth or left behind or zombies or anything like that. But it is scary because like, sometimes when we see things for the way that they are, that can be scary, right? When that curtain gets dropped and we're like, oh, that's what's back there? That's how things actually work? Like, that can be a really scary, disrupting, disorienting thing. And my friends, we've, we've been in a profound season of unveiling. For the last four or five, six years, like, it seems like we have been in an apocalyptic moment where the, the curtains have been coming down. Like, in our world, in our nation, but more specifically f for this context, like, within the church. There's been all sorts of stories coming to light about uh, Christian leaders, and maybe I should even be more specific, Christian male leaders who have uh, abused their power in some way and then taken th that same sort of power and done everything that they can to cover up that abuse of power. We've seen um, all sorts of sexism and racism and classism. We've seen xenophobia and homophobia and transphobia. Like All of these things that perhaps were like, Implicit, now getting to be like explicit um, over the last number of years. We've seen things like nationalism, like greed and power grabs, especially at the expense of like the marginalized. And all of this seems to be done in the name 
of religion, in the name of Christianity, in the name of God. And we wonder, like, no wonder so many of us are in a crisis of faith or are deconstructing, right? Seems like the curtains are coming down all around us. Now, I do have some good news, okay? Um, but first, I have some bad news. Um, and the bad news is, is like, none of this garbage, none of this, like, uh, ugliness that exists behind the curtains in the name of God or in the name of religion is new. Uh, scripture seems to witness to this reality time and time again, particularly when we get to this uh, section at the end of our Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew Bible, called the Prophets. And this seems to be uh, particularly what's happening within uh, the context of the book of Micah. So a little bit about the context of the book of Micah. Uh, Micah, who we assume was written by Micah, but biblical scholarship is always a very confusing thing. Uh, Micah is what's called a prophet. And again, if apocalyptic is like top five all-time scary words, prophet is maybe in the top ten, right? Because there's all sorts of funny images about prophets. But suffice it to say, like when we talk about a prophet, we're talking about like the mouthpiece of God, like somebody who speaks a word of God, from God, for the people of God. And part of the reason why prophets are uh, scary is because when we think of prophets, we often think about them as like foretelling, like telling, predicting something that's going to happen in the future, that they're the ones who say, this is going to happen, and then it ultimately ends up happening. That's kind of what prophets do, but rather than foretelling, what prophets are actually doing is more like forthtelling. They're not predicting the future, but they're making public what's perhaps behind the curtain or what's happening that others haven't been able to see. And again, we get back to that idea of apocalyptic, right? They make known uh, the things that are happening that maybe people didn't know was happening, but God wants this to be revealed now. God wants this to be made public so that we can live in light of it moving forward. And so this is, what the, this is the work that Micah is doing. Now Micah does his work at the end of the 8th century BC, which if you're like me, dates, especially in the Old Testament, mean nothing because it's like a lot of years that we're dealing with. However, this is like actually a bit relevant because just prior to Micah doing his thing at the end of the 8th century, in the year 722 BC, Israel, the northern kingdom of the people of God, was captured and ransacked and sent into exile by the big bad foreign neighbors, Assyria. Now to make sense of the exile a little bit, let's do a quick history lesson. So this is a quick timeline of uh, the story of the people of God. So we begin with the Exodus. So God steps in and delivers and liberates and saves God's people from their enslavement to the big bad superpower of the day, Egypt. God leads them through the sea and they begin to wander in the desert. And while they're in the desert, God gives them the law. This law is all of these, uh, to us in the 21st century, strange things, right? But then also like these commandments to care for the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, the stranger among you. All of these things about creating a just and be beautiful society where all can flourish. And then from there, um, we see the people enter into the promised land. And after they're in the promised land, this land that God had said that God would give them uh, when God liberated them, they begin to develop a monarchy. They have a king, a kingdom. And they do that for a little bit, and then they have a bit of a civil war, and they enter into a divided monarchy where we have Israel moving to the north, which is confusing because the original name was Israel. Um, it makes your head spin a little bit. And then Judah is the southern kingdom here. And then after they do this for, for a bit, they enter into exile. Israel first gets uh, sent into exile by Assyria, the big bad neighbors by them. 
And then uh, Judah, not too long after, gets sent into exile by Babylon. Again, they're big bad neighbors uh, around them. Exile. Like, we cannot stress this enough. Exile would have been, like, the most painful sort of experience for the people of God. Like, we're talking about forced deportation, forced migration, a bloody, violent sort of experience of being ripped from the only land that you've ever known, the only sort of culture and customs that you have ever known, and sent into a foreign, distant land that you don't know. Like this sort of trauma of this experience would have lasted generation upon generation upon generation. And I think the only thing that we can like remotely compare to it in our context in modern history is like 9-11, right? That sense of like, oh, that can happen to us? And, and you can imagine kids today who didn't like experience it as they hear the stories of like everybody else saying like, I remember where I was when I heard about the towers coming down, right? That sort of like, collective sort of communal trauma that gets passed on generation to generation. Now, this reality of exile shouldn't have actually surprised the people because we see its uh, potential being baked into the law itself. So going all the way back to the law with Moses, we see Moses saying this in the book of Deuteronomy. He says, when you've had children and children's children and become complacent in the land, if you act corruptly by making an idol in the form of anything, thus doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God and provoking him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you were crossing the Jordan to occupy, the the promised land, if you will. You will not live long on it, but will be utterly destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, this is the exile, Only a few of you will be left among the nations where the Lord will lead you. So we see that throughout their entire story, there's this understanding that there is a potential of exile, which begs the question, how do we not get sent into exile? (laughs) And the answer to that is like you live faithfully to the law. Covenant faithfulness is the term that's used. And to be faithful to the covenant meant that you respond graciously to God's gracious act of delivering you, saving you, liberating you from your enslavement to Egypt. And you live in light of that by living out these, again, what feel like strange laws to us in the 21st century, but also these like direct commands to care for the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, the stranger among you, to create a just and equitable and fair society in which all can survive and thrive. This is what covenant faithfulness looks like. Um, it, it's all about creating this sort of uh, society. And so when we get back to Micah then, it seems as though what's happening uh, in Micah's time is that there is actually like rampant injustice. That there are people who are in positions of power, who are prosperous, who are getting more and more powerful, more and more prosperous on the backs of the marginalized and claiming that uh, they have done this in the name of God and that God has blessed them and given their own sort of power and prosperity. Does that sound familiar in any way, right? It's, it's people who are doing whatever they want as long as they do it in the name of God and giving God credit for all of the, the wealth and success that they have gotten along the way. Does anybody else have a problem with this sort of posture and living in the world, right? Well, so does God. And so the result of this is exile, right? It's God's way of saying, like, I'm a consenting God, and as much as you want to live into this reality, you can. But as much as you want to live into the reality of the gods of the nations around you, you can. But there goes that protection um, with you. And so this is the waters that Micah's swimming in as Micah's doing his thing. So with that in mind, we read then in Micah chapter 6. 
It begins, hear what the Lord says. Rise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the controversy of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth for the people, or for the Lord has a controversy with his people and he will contend with Israel. So this is now God speaking to the people. Notice the inflection here. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? And what have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what King Balak of Moab devised and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him and what happened to him from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. I read this as God getting a little snarky with the people here, right? (laughs) It says, how have I wearied you? How have I let you down? And then begins to list out all the ways that God has saved and delivered the people. How have I let you down? Let me tell you how I haven't let you down, right? Growing up, one of my brothers uh, was a master at the art of a guilt trip. And when things didn't go his way, he would begin to just like lay it on you thick. And my mom would often be in the background going, pack your bags, you're going on a guilt trip, right? Pack your bags, you're going on a guilt trip from God here, right? Like, this is the the sense of what God's saying here. And so the people, like, understandably are like, well, how can we fix this? Like, what are we supposed to do? And so the people now respond, and they say, well, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What's the response to God's frustration with them? Sacrifice. More religiosity, more worship, right? Like, let's burn some things and hope that the scent makes God happy with us, right? And we see that there's like this strange progression. It begins with calves, and then it's thousands of rams, and then 10,000 rivers of oil, culminating to like a child. One commentator notes, the tone of the people's response seems to be exasperated, as if God could only be satisfied with more and more burnt offerings, culminating in the possibility of human sacrifice. God's frustrated. God lets us know God's frustrated. How do we respond? We start sacrificing all sorts of things, right? The commentator goes on and says, the prophet, meaning Micah, the prophet's litany in verse 8, which we'll read next, pivots away from sacrificial worship towards a new orientation for everyday life, reminding the people of what God requires of them. Now we have the prophet speaking to the people uh, on behalf of God. God has told you, O mortal, what is good? What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, And to walk humbly with your God. See, there's all of this ugliness, all of this garbage that's existing behind the curtain. The the exile happens. It's this apocalyptic moment. The curtain comes crashing down. Everybody sees what's happening. And so their response is, how do we make God happy in the midst of this? Do we worship more? Do we sacrifice more? And the prophet says, no. That's not what God requires. That's not what God desires. That's not what God's inviting you into. But what God is inviting us into is a life where we do justice where we, we work together to create a just and equitable and fair society in which everybody can uh, thrive. We love kindness. This word that gets translated kindness is uh, a Hebrew word, uh, chesed. Say that with me, that's fun. Chesed, right? 
Hesed means covenant fidelity, being faithful to the covenant of God. It can also mean like a a loyal love, a a love that is generous and expansive, that has this deep sort of commitment to it. It's all about living out this reality of loving God, uh, but putting flesh on it and by loving our neighbors. Again, creating this just and equitable and fair society. And then walking humbly with our God. This reality that like faith is like an everyday lived experience. It's not just about sacrificing something one day a week, but it's about like this realization that God is ever present and ever at work among us and living in light of that. And so in the midst of all of this ugliness, all of this garbage that's happening, um, the prophet says to the people, like, just so you know, like, let's be clear what God wants. These three things, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. All right, now to the good news. Um, In the midst of all of the ugliness that we see in these uh, apocalyptic sort of moments, right? All of the the garbage that seems to exist behind the curtains, all of the isms, all of the phobias, all of the the greed and the nationalism and the power and the political grabs. In the midst of all of this garbage and ugliness, we might be really tempted to say, like, let's just burn this whole thing to the ground, right? (laughs) There's nothing good in this. Let's just burn this thing down to the ground and start all over. But the good news is, we don't have to burn this thing down to the ground. <laughs> because I think prof, or the, the prophet Micah offers us three things that can act as like a pillar, a, a core, if you will, that like we can begin to rebuild our faith around rather than having to burn this whole thing down. There's a, we can think about it this way. There's a, a, a pastor and an author by the name of Brian Zahn who uh, recently wrote a book called When Everything's on Fire, which is in our church library, except not right now, because I was looking for it this week. So hopefully you're enjoying it, and a little bit of a spoiler alert. Um, So within his book, he talks about um, uh, remodeling our theological home. So he says that our theological home is the way that we, we talk about God, the way that we think about God, the way that we understand who God is. And Uh, if we think about like a regular home, we recognize that sometimes our regular homes need to be remodeled from time to time, right? That uh, anybody live in an old house, you know that some remodeling needs to happen from time to time, right? It's a good and necessary part of living in a home. That's how we steward our home. It's how we care for our home. But we recognize that when it comes to like remodeling, it doesn't require that we, uh, uh, it doesn't require destruction, Right? If I'm going to remodel my kitchen, that doesn't mean that I destroy my entire house, decimate everything to the foundation, and then start over. No, like I'm going to focus in just on my kitchen, right? So we recognize that remodeling doesn't require destruction, but it might require deconstruction. If I'm going to remodel my kitchen, I'm going to have to deconstruct some things. I'm going to have to take down the cabinets. And perhaps if the walls aren't good, then I'm going to have to take off the drywall or chip away at the plaster so that I can begin to do something different there, right? And at times, a, a specific room might be so bad that we have to deconstruct it down to the very studs, like the support system for the house, like the bones, the skeleton that exists within uh, the core of our house. And I wonder if like, this analogy doesn't also apply to our life of faith. That sometimes our, our theological house needs to be remodeled. That, that sometimes there are parts within it that just need some updating, that, that need to be enhanced in some way. 
And when it comes to this, this idea, like we don't have to destroy the entire house. We don't have to burn the whole thing down. But rather we can look at these concentrated areas and recognize that there are some things that need to be deconstructed. There are some ideas that need to be taken down, some ideas that do need to be chipped away, and that perhaps we even need to get back down to the very core of what exists at the core of our faith. And I think Micah speaks to this so beautifully, and I think we see this embodied in the life of Jesus, right? To, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. That this can be the studs of the house of our theological home. And if we get our studs right, we can, we can begin to like build something beautiful from there. Now, I recognize that a number of us are uh, maybe even in this experience of like a crisis of faith or a moment of deconstruction, like even right now. And I, I recognize that that can be, again, this really scary, disorienting, disrupting sort of space, and it can even feel really isolating and even really lonely uh, when you're in the midst of it. Um, it can feel like there isn't like any sort of hope. So please hear me when I say, like, there is hope in the midst of a crisis of faith. There is hope in the midst of a season of deconstruction and that you don't have to do it alone. I think for some people, they actually have a hard time like, with this word deconstruction because it feels so hopeless, right? It's all about tearing down. There's, there's, there's not like a, a sense of like, something new in its place. And so here's the good thing about English language. Like, we have lots of other words, <laughs> So if you don't like the word deconstruction, how about we use the word like remodeling, right? What if instead of deconstructing our faith, we're remodeling our theological home? Because again, remodeling is a good and necessary part of living in any sort of home. And if it's a good and necessary part of, any, uh, of living in any sort of home, then perhaps remodeling is also like a good and necessary part of an honest pursuit of God. One of my favorite stories in all of scripture is uh, in Genesis chapter 32, where we see uh, Jacob, who's one of the patriarchs of of Israel, uh, like wrestling with God all night. And it's such a strange and surprising story because we expect somebody to like submit to God Almighty, and yet that's not what Jacob does. Jacob wrestles with God all night, has the audacity to take God to the wrestling mat, and fights and fights and fights, and doesn't give up till God kind of sucker punches him and dislocates his hip. But in the end of all of this, God looks upon Jacob and blesses him and gives him a new name of Israel which becomes the name of the people of God, which seems to suggest that this is like some sort of paradigm for what it means to be part of the people of God. That we too wrestle with God, that we don't give up, but that we, we grapple with God, that we say like, I want to figure this out and we don't give up all throughout the night. So remodeling is good, it's necessary, it's part of an honest pursuit of God, but I think it's also part of like the work of being the church together. In Matthew's gospel, in two different places, in two separate occasions, uh, Jesus says something along the lines of this. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Um, he's using these two terms, bind and loose, which are, are, are the language of the rabbis of the day, the teachers uh, of the faith. And uh, to bind something meant to like, interpret the law with like a stricter, sort of tighter sort of interpretation. But to loosen the law meant to give a little bit of breathing room in it, to give a, a bit more of an open interpretation. And I, when I hear the word bind and loose, I think of like remodeling a house, right? Like there are some times that we need to like tighten things up, right? And there are other times when we need to loosen things up to create some, some new space. And so when it comes to our theological home, like 
this is, this is the work of the church together. Like Jesus gives us collectively, the, this is the work of the church to bind and loosen things together. And so in our, our present moment, we read things like the Sermon on the Mount. We collectively say like, yeah, we, we need to double down on that. Like that's a good and beautiful thing to like love our enemies and like all of these sorts of things, right? But then there are other times when the church has said like, you know, our understanding of slavery, we should probably change that a little bit, right? And so we said, oh, you know, like people shouldn't be treated as property. That was a good loosening, right? That was a good remodeling of our theological home. Uh, remodeling our theological home doesn't require destruction, but it certainly might require some deconstruction. Deconstruction doesn't have to lead to destruction, and deconstruction also doesn't have to be a destination. Um, we recognize that this, this process of, of deconstruction, if you've ever done it in your home, is kind of a dangerous, stressful sort of place to be, right? Um, when, when the toddler room was getting remodeled, I walked in when everything had been taken out of the cabinets and everything was like stretched or spread out upon the ground, and I think Kat saw me walk in when I went, and she said, don't worry, this is the messy middle. <laughs> and I love that phrase so much, the, the messy middle. Because it acknowledges that it's, it's the middle. <laughs> it's not the end. And so for those of us who find ourselves in a crisis of faith or in a, a moment of deconstruction, maybe it's even helpful to think about it as a messy middle. This isn't the end. It's part of the journey. And remodeling our, our theological home, it's good. It's necessary. It's part of an honest pursuit of God. And it's also the work of the church. Like, you don't have to do it alone. So friends, like, let's, let's keep remodeling our theological home. Let's keep having honest conversations together. Let's keep uh, this, this pursuit of God going. And throughout it, hopefully we can rebuild some sort of theological home um, that embodies, like, what we see in Micah, to doing justice, to loving kindness, to walking humbly with our God, which we see so beautifully in Jesus. And maybe we too can... Uh, uh, live out the way of Jesus in a, a more beautiful sort of way. Let's pray. Loving God, uh, we are grateful uh, for the gift of, of Scripture and uh, the ways that we can wrestle with it together and grow and learn together. I thank you for the witnesses of the prophets in the midst of these like sort of apocalyptic, unveiling sorts of moments. And thank you for the reality that in the midst of like the ugliness that may be happening in the name of our faith, that we don't have to burn the whole thing down. <laughs> that there is like a richness, a beauty that sits at the core of it, at the, the, with, baked within the studs of our theological home, of doing justice, of loving kindness, and walking humbly with you. So God, may we have the courage to remodel the parts that need to be remodeled, to recognize that some parts may just be straight up corrupt and we gotta, we gotta take those parts out. But give us the wisdom, give us the courage to remodel well. We ask that your spirit be baked into that process and that our theological homes, the ways that we talk about you, the ways that we think about you, the ways that we understand you and the ways that we live to reflect you um, can look more and more like Jesus. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.